Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today, I have two very exciting co-hosts today. Both are LARB editors. Medea Ocher is the managing editor. Hi, Medea. Hi, Lori. Is it okay if I call you Dea? It is okay. Okay. Yes. Dea. I will answer. And also, we have Kate Wolf, who is an editor at large. Hi, Lori. Hi, Kate. Good to see you again. Nice to see you. And today, the three of us will be talking to Emily Witt, who is the author of Future Sex. Emily Witt, author of Future Sex. We're very happy to have you. Thank you for being interviewed. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So your new book is called Future Sex, and it's just out. What kind of feedback are you getting? I've been getting mostly positive feedback, at least the feedback that I've been reading. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's been a lot of interviews and, yeah, a lot of Q&As and a lot of press attention, more than I was expecting, actually. It's kind of been a surprise. Emily, this book is such a huge topic you're approaching. Sex, the future, women, single women, the possibilities. And I was really impressed by your concision. And I was wondering how you limited, how you decided to shape the scope of the book and if you had any rules for yourself. Um, Because it just seems like you were able to kind of focus in in a way that I was very impressed with. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, I would say it was a very inefficient process where (laughs) (laughs) it went from being very unfocused. When I started writing the book, I envisioned it more as a cultural history and less of a personal narrative. So early drafts that I turned in, I had a lot of history of the internet and history of internet porn and internet dating and how it all happened. And my editor just really encouraged me to focus on my own experience of these platforms and use the history insofar as it might illuminate an argument, but not try to cover everything, which I think in the end was good advice, but it was hard for me to let go of the idea I had of the book at the beginning. Was it hard for you to write about yourself? Did that take getting used to? Yeah, it was really hard. I've written a lot of articles where I'm writing in the first person. I don't think of myself really as a memoirist, but I try to interpret my observations through a first-person lens. That's usually the position I try to take when I'm writing with the eye. But in this case, there was just so much that I wanted to hide (laughs) as I was writing. And on the one hand, we live in this society that people describe as hypersexualized, and there's all these depictions of sexuality around on TV and whatnot. But that didn't mean that I wasn't feeling some sense of repression as I began sharing about my own personal experiences. And I was worried that if I would write, for example, about a chlamydia scare I had, that nobody would want to date me again, (laughs) you know, that I would be unattractive. I was worried about that. I was worried about if I wrote too freely about some of the 
sexual experimentation I did, that I'm a working freelance journalist, that editors wouldn't take me seriously anymore. They would see me as a kind of crazy person or something. All of these fears proved to be unfounded, I think. But yeah, it was hard to write about myself. We would date you. (laughs) (laughs) We would, in a a polyamorous relationship. (laughs) It would be four of us. That would be great. (laughs) And in terms of actual reporting, I was wondering what for you was the most difficult. You have this experience with the orgasmic meditation, Burning Man, the polyamorous couple. What for you, just in terms of experiencing, put you in the most uncomfortable or challenging position? Definitely the orgasmic meditation group was the place where I felt the most uncomfortable. Emily, Um, could you just describe it a little bit, just for our listeners who maybe haven't read the book yet, what the situation was there? Sure. I spent time at an organization called One Taste that has developed a practice they call orgasmic meditation or oming. In the practice, a woman and a partner sit down, the woman takes off her pants, the partner strokes her clitoris for 15 minutes, and then afterward they share a little bit of discussion about their feelings, but then the woman puts her clothes back on and they go about their day. And the idea of the practice is that it's kind of a third place that's not masturbation and it's not intercourse. And the idea is to create a contained experience in which a woman can experience sexuality and explore physical feelings in her body without any narrative of dating or romance attached to it, but also without some of the risks of casual sex. And it's meant to be a practice that can happen between friends. The woman is not supposed to reciprocate. It's not meant to be foreplay. It's just supposed to be this contained experience in which a woman can ponder her sexuality. So in order to do this within this one organization, you go to a workshop where they introduce you to the practice and you go through a series of exercises and then you try it and you can invite other people to own with you. So this was the experience that was the most challenging for you? Yeah, it was challenging because it was partially the culture of the place was very influenced by the human potential movement and by and that tradition of New Age thought. And so at the workshop, you had to do a lot of exercises that made me very uncomfortable, like sitting across from a person while they described all the flaws or blemishes in your face or, <laughs> or standing next to a stranger and stroking each other's shoulders. Things that I was surprised, they made me so uncomfortable. And in some ways, that was more difficult than actually trying the practice. Hmm. I'm 20-some years older than you are, whereas Dea and Kate are basically your same age. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to tell you where I was coming from with this. I was a little bit too young to really be around for the Plato's retreat, open sex kind of stuff that went on in the early 70s and late 60s. -hmm. But I know a lot of women who did go through that stuff. And it always seemed to me that that kind of stuff, the men enjoyed it much more than the women did. And the women kind of did it because they felt like it wouldn't be cool to say no. And I'm also talking about key parties and those things from the 70s. 
Did you find that at all in your exploration? Did you find that gender division in your exploration of some of these practices? I'm not sure that I did. I think the culture of people that are experimenting with different ideas about free love, which I use broadly to say anything from polyamory to just open relationships to somebody that might look at internet pornography. I think that in the 70s, what I learned about that time, first of all, society itself had much more gender inequality embedded in it, I think. And a lot of times these experiments were approached according to a philosophy where you're trying to shed your conditioning. And so putting somebody through an experience of willful discomfort, like making your partner watch while you slept with another woman and forcing her to feel the kind of worst experience of those feelings was seemed to have been part of those subcultures at the time. Whereas now I think there's much more sensitivity that these experiments are emotionally difficult and that that isn't a bad thing. That's not something that you have to just kind of persevere through. It's something that you can work through and discuss your feelings and feelings should be taken very seriously. There's much more sensitivity around why this might be a hard thing and Mm -hmm. much more willingness, I think, to go slow and take things step by step. So I think it's harder for women just because we have more health risks with our bodies when we're actually out there. We face a lot more social conditioning and double standards about what it means to be sexually open and what will happen to us that will be punished. We're taught to fear sexuality a lot more. But I think the expectation of equality that younger people have now has meant that they are interested in how, even with these gender differences existing, women can also pursue experiments in free love and try to find fulfillment with an open sexuality. Yeah, I think something that's so interesting about the book is the way you trace social progress versus technological progress. And it's unclear to me exactly if one allows for the other... They seem very entwined throughout the way you treat them both and kind of what technology can promise, but then what we're asking for in the first place. So I guess my question was, it seems like you start off the book kind of as a technological pessimist, but you're also exploring all the things that technology can give women with chat, chatteret. Basically, when you compare the video sex to Samuel Delaney's experience in the movie theaters in Times Square, and that women can start to experience something like that in a way that they are not in physical danger. And moving on to your experience at Burning Man and basically ending with this idea that you might be the last generation to experience a difference between your body and a machine or an idea of authenticity that's apart from technology. But I was interested just if your relationship to ideas of technology and progress changed throughout the book and kind of where you arrived at by the end. Yeah, part of the reason I wanted to write the book is everything I was reading about the effects of technologies like internet dating and internet pornography on women. The articles I was reading were almost uniformly pessimistic or very wary with the underlying foundation of all of these articles being that 
what represented the most respect and equality for a woman was a kind of monogamous relationship where the sex wasn't pornographic somehow and everybody did equal housework or something. It was never clear to me what exactly was being threatened by these new technologies, but that was always, or by quote-unquote hookup culture being enabled by technology. But there was always this kind of hidden nostalgia in everything I was reading. And I, I really wanted to look at these developments and just err towards optimism and really suspend whatever critiques I might have too and try to find a feeling of possibility and of happiness within all this. So that was kind of how I went into it. And the other thing I noticed is the extent to which people wanted the technology to really change everything. So they, people wanted to believe that just because we had Tinder now, we were all living these libertine lives where we just felt so free to just hook up with each other by turning on our phones. And I knew from my own experience that as much as I liked that idea, kind of, and I thought it was interesting and exciting, my own experience sort of never would work out that way, <laughs> just right. either because I was too inhibited or the other person was or the feeling wasn't right. And with something like pornography, too, on the one hand, yeah, there's this idea that Internet porn was imposing its will, dictating our sexuality for us, when it's much more that it's easy to think that these technologies change everything. It's really the stories that we're telling ourselves about how we're supposed to act and how we're supposed to be that are more important. So by the end of the book, I came to almost think that there was really a machine bias when it came to discussions of futurism around sexuality and that people really want it to be apps and sex robots and virtual reality when actually it's something much less sexy than that. Sexy is the wrong word. Technological than that, really. What is futuristic looking forward is how we're going to rearrange society and our families and the way we raise children, the way we conceive children, in which sexual freedom is a value that we collectively uphold. are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. We have back in the studio today for a book recommendation, Leo Brody, whose newish book is called Haunted on Ghosts, Witches, Vampires, Zombies, and Other Monsters of the Natural and Supernatural Worlds. I don't feel like I need to explain the book at all because you've done it for me. Welcome back, Leo. Thanks, Lori. We like to ask people for book recommendations, and what would you like to recommend? Well, I don't want to be presumptuous about this, but I think a lot of understanding about what's happened in the recent election and what's been happening in American culture generally you can get a handle on, I think, if I can recommend an earlier book of my own. Please <laughs> do. I think I know which one you mean, and it's a favorite of mine. It's called The Frenzy of Renown, and it's about a history of fame from Alexander the Great down to the present. doesn't quite include uh, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump there, but it's about fame and how fame works 
in different kinds of societies, and particularly, of course, the last parts of it are about how, what happens to fame in a democratic society, particularly in America. And I think we've seen some incredible, outstanding, and upsetting examples of that in mm-hmm. the recent weeks. Mm-hmm. And in your book, Haunted, you write about Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein. And again, I might be reading into what you said, but her husband, Percy Shelley, was a very ambitious young man, and that her depiction of a very arrogant man who wanted to be famous and the dangers of that type of personality that she could have been writing about her own husband as far as far as we know. I think to a certain extent she was writing, and she was certainly writing about a sense of male entitlement and male assertiveness and aspiration there. Mm. I mean, the whole idea of a man wanting to create a being without, <laughs> without a woman <laughs> involved in the situation, <laughs> you know, there's a kind of solipsism and a kind of narcissism about it that uh, we may be familiar with. Well, I'm sure under President Trump, we won't have to worry about men who are out of control with their own power. I That's, hope not. I'm just being sarcastic. <laughs> Leo, thanks so much for coming back. Happy to be here yet again, Lori. The book is The Frenzy of Renown by Leo Brody, one of the best books ever written about fame and its repercussions. And now, back to our interview with Emily Witt, the author of Future Sex. One of the lines that I really liked in your book was that Americans think a lot about the future of objects and we don't think so much about the future of human arrangements. And that one of the things that it seems like you really try to do in this book is precisely focus on that future rather than the sort of object-oriented future that we generally look at. Is that also what you mean by machine bias? Yeah, it's definitely what I mean. I mean, if you look at the statistics of how our lives have changed, many more people not getting married or getting married much later, which means they tend to have years of their lives where they're having shorter-term sexual relationships. Almost, I think, 40% of children in the U.S. are now born to unwed parents, and in certain communities, that's much higher. And yet, looking around, and the book coming out at the same time as the election happening, and on both sides of the divide, just this relentless insistence on what a family looked like, it being really traditional to parents and baby, you know, Chelsea Clinton talking about her husband and her baby. It was frustrating to me because that's not how many of our lives look now. And this refusal from kind of governmental bodies and in the social space to see lives that don't fit into that model as less as purposeful. They're always kind of treated as like unfortunate accidents when, especially now that it's approaching almost half of the population that doesn't live in this kind of married family way. Yeah, I'm just really interested in when we're going to start acknowledging this fact of our society in a kind of intentional way. It's interesting that you bring up the election, and I was wondering which one of us is going to bring it up first, because <laughs> it, it seems inevitable, even when we are talking about something that like sex, I mean, the future of sex. But something that occurred to me was that it seemed like 
there was a point at which, at Burning Man in particular, that you felt the sincerity of the movement, or that you felt as if you were a part of it. There was a part in the introduction where you mentioned going home after these sorts of meetings and joking about it with your friends. But it seemed to me that by the end of the book, you had sort of moved past that kind of attitude and felt a little bit more sincerely involved. And I was wondering if that sounds accurate in terms of how you felt. Yeah, absolutely. At the beginning, when I started this process, I really thought of myself as a conventional person and that I was going to meet people in these communities as a journalist interested in documenting a range of cultural choices, but not out of personal inquiry. And yeah, I wanted to think of myself as somebody. I was lucky that my sexuality and my race put me in a really easily prescribed way of life that meant that I didn't have to do a lot of self-inquiry about what my expectations should be. But then I came to realize what a disadvantage that was in many ways, that I had simply inherited a set of expectations and plans for myself without asking myself whether they were the best ones for me or I really wanted them. My idea of my own sexuality came to be revealed to me as highly constructed and pretty arbitrary. But when I began the book, yeah, I I didn't want to admit to anybody that I might be sort of unhappy with the life I'd planned for myself, which was kind of just date until I fall in love and get married. Right. I appreciated your questions about childcare or about basically the possibility of having a child as a single woman and realizing how difficult that would be. So, for instance, that's a place where there are not a lot of apps that I know of in terms of responsibility sharing or kind of community building. How much have you seen the conversation shift, let's say, over the last decade in terms of what, as women or as men or as somewhere in between, what people want from technology beyond just sexual availability or fantasy? Or do you feel like you're seeing any kind of progression towards... Are there areas that need attention? Less, perhaps, than I would have liked. I'm not a parent, so I'm not totally aware of what's out there in that space. But just in terms of thinking about birth control, there's been very little innovation and contraception in the past 50 years. The only kind of paradigm-changing development was the morning-after pill, As I say in the book, there's all these things that we take for granted. We take for granted that the condom is the only form of contraception that will both prevent pregnancy and STDs. I don't think it's crazy to say that condoms are kind of a problem for many of us. Um, It's kind of something you use with with some sadness because you have to, (laughs) but it's not necessarily the best sexual experience sometimes. And why hasn't all this innovation that we've seen brought us something better. Is it really that impossible? Why has funding for contraception almost totally dried up in the past couple of decades? Pretty much every mainstream pharmaceutical company has stopped putting money into that. Is that because that problem is solved? I think any woman who's taken contraception of any form will say it's still a pain. It's still not as good as it could be somehow. In your discussion of contraception, you also bring up celibacy, right? And the role of the celibate in societies of the past, so nuns, et cetera. And that you sort of make a case for the person on contraceptives 
as a kind of celibate. I was wondering what you thought of as the status of celibacy in this future technological sex world. Because it seems to me that celibacy becomes very confusing where, let's say, in video and video chat, right, there's no actual physical touching of bodies. There's no actual sexual consummation. And that the status of celibacy in particular seems really unclear or amorphous to me and what you thought of that. Yeah, just to clarify that part where I'm comparing, before contraception, there were all these vocations attached to celibacy, like the ascetic or the hermit or the nun or the priest, where celibacy gave you a sense of purpose. It didn't it meant not having sex, but not having sex because you weren't going to exist in a domestic sphere. You were going to play a different role in adult life that was really respected by society. And what I was saying is that we could still have a range of roles about what adult life looks like that doesn't necessarily need to be tied to celibacy, but is more people that choose not to have children, mm-hmm. you know, that they are choosing a different vocation in life that might be more outward facing or might involve more. But then celibacy itself as a question, yeah, there is one person that I speak to in the book that she has a very active webcam life, and she considers that perhaps she's internet sexual, by which she means her sexuality is always mediated and it's not. She's celibate in real life. And I think that's something that sexuality is not just having sex. It's a whole position by which you're approaching the world and interacting with the world. So I think there will always be people who opt out of physical contact either because of some trauma or because, I don't know, any range of reasons. And I like the idea of celibacy in that sense, not as a limitation, but as okay, so you're celibate, like, but you're still a sexual being in the world and this technology has given you other ways of engaging sexually with people. Right, um, it's another... That might not involve your body. Another item on an ever-growing menu. Emily, I'm sure you're aware that there are women like Dr. Joyce Brothers and Ruth Westheimer who became kind of sex gurus. I'm assuming that's not what you see for yourself, or what is your next book, I guess, is my question. <laughs> yeah, I no, I'm definitely not going to write a sex manual and... <laughs> I think they were much more, you know, they served a a very important purpose at the particular point in history when they became famous and there was an opening up of discussion just about the mechanics of sexuality and how to masturbate and especially for women, you know, all of this consciousness raising that if anybody who reads my book looking for that will be very disappointed. There's not a lot of actual sex in it really. But what happened for me when I started the book is I was very interested in female sexuality as this place where there's just seemed to be a lot of dishonesty in the way that we spoke about it and inauthenticity and it needed a new story. So I'm always looking to write about similar places in society where there's a lot of hypocrisy and the intellectual model by which we're living, like our actual lives don't concord very well with the story that we're telling about our lives. So for my next book, I haven't decided yet. I'm interested and I've been writing a little bit about drugs as a similar thing that there's been a big sea change in 
how we think about drugs, both recreational and pharmaceutical. And it seems to me a similar place where there's a kind of hypocrisy between how we act and how we talk about it, how we categorize things. and As well as a new availability. Right. And it's also something, yeah, obviously deeply changed by the internet. Right. So that's another kind of recent history that I'm interested in exploring, but I'm not sure. That sounds like, like a fact, rich... It's illegal. So. I think you should do a book on, <laughs> on drugs and sex together because it's a good combination. There are um, some drugs in <laughs> yes, book yes, there are. I want to thank you, Emily, and thank you for Dea and for Kate. Thank you so much for coming to the LARB Radio Hour, and we really enjoy talking to you. Great to be here. Thanks. Emily Witt is the author of Future Sex. This week's poem is Love is Not All by Edna St. Vincent Millay, written in 1931. One of my favorite poems, one of the most beautiful love poems of the last century, read by Emily Skinner, who Broadway fans know from the musical Sideshow. She's done many other things. Edna St. Vincent Millay was born in Rockland, Maine. She was one of the original Bohemians. She moved to Greenwich Village, where she lived in a nine-foot attic, and she was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1923. Love is Not All by Edna St. Vincent Millay Love is not all, and is not meat, nor drink, nor slumber, nor a roof against the rain, nor yet a floating spar to men that sink and rise and sink and rise and sink again. Love cannot fill the thickened lung with breath, nor clean the blood, nor set the fractured bone. Yet many a man is making friends with death, even as I speak, for lack of love alone. It well may be that in a difficult hour, pinned down by pain and moaning for release, or nagged by want past resolution's power, I might be driven to sell your love for peace, or trade the memory of this night for food. It well may be. I do not think I would. That was Emily Skinner reading Love is Not All by Edna St. Vincent Millay, a poem about the mysterious power of things that we cannot see. Okay, here's a strange little thing. Maybe it's not worth saying, but I was fascinated by the name Edna St. Vincent Millay when I was a kid. Yeah, because it's like, what's going on with that I couldn't name? figure it out. I could not figure it out. It have you figured it out? I have now, yeah. It doesn't seem as mysterious to me, but I just remember thinking, oh, this is somehow what poetry is about. You don't quite understand it. And sometimes you would say Edna Vincent St. Millay. Exactly. Like you, yeah. Exactly. And remember the order. No. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood, 
for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Laurie Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 